Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. No, you're not. So sometimes there's the the breakdown, the description of what we're looking for, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the feedback or the cue that you're you're going to give. Welcome to yet another episode of 80% Mental. I'm Dr. Pete Olushaga and I'm joined as ever by the one and only Hugh Gilmore. Hugh, it's been a while, hasn't it, since we last recorded one of these things? Um, yeah, it's been too long, Pete. I've, I've actually missed it. I'm really looking forward tonight. Yeah, well, at the time of recording, uh, we've just passed 20,000 downloads. Yep. Which is quite impressive. I'm quite impressed with myself and yourself. Yeah. Well, I mean... Yeah, we've done a good job, but I'd say you've done most of the work. <laughs> and we've got um, we've got a few recordings lined up in the next few weeks as well, so I'm really looking forward to uh, to, to that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, season two is shaping up. Um, I'm quite excited as well because this one ties in with the previous episode that we did with Arthur Lynch um, on burnout in powerlifting. So, uh, yeah, it's a good link to be linking these episodes up. So, yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, I um, I have my first covid vaccine yesterday uh the euphoria lasted approximately 20 minutes and i feel like absolute crap today um which is good because that's what my body's supposed to be doing vaccines are great get vaccinated and i think we should take the opportunity with the platform we've got to uh promote the idea of vaccinations as a miracle of modern science do you know what? Um, I know some people who are anti-vaxxers and that's okay. That's good if you're an anti-vaxxer. Um, but I would say to you, there's a really good video. Well, it's not from, good. Well, well, I don't know. You, everyone's entitled <laughs> to their opinion. But there's a really good video from Penn and Teller about vaccination. And it's a really good visual way of explaining to people how good vaccines are. Hmm. Because you're more likely to have side effects and have negative consequences if you don't get vaccinated and that goes for all the things that we've eradicated by vaccinations hmm. so if somebody doubts the vaccine go watch the Penn and Tyler video on vaccination um because it really you know it drove the message home for me and I hate needles and you know if anti-vaxxers are listening and decide they don't want to listen anymore then I, I, I can live with that um anyway should we just get on with it Okay, let's get on with it. They're not really a core fan base, are they, anti-vaxxers? Um, flat earthers, they can they can sort off as well. Um, anyway, let's get on with it, and let's introduce our topic and our guests for today. I think it's fair to say that the majority of an athlete's work's done when you're not watching, right? The hours of practice, watching tape, thinking about tactics, strategy, working on technical elements, you know, skill development, nutrition, rehab, prehab, rest, recovery. All of this takes place behind closed doors, but it's vital in making sure an athlete is ready to perform when the lights come on. And when we think of strength and conditioning as well, we might picture athletes doing endless back squats and bench pressing for days, but there's a lot more to this side of athlete preparation than just picking up heavy things and putting them down again and picking them up again and putting them down again and picking them up again and putting them down again. Well, there's also like you have to put them back where you got them as well, Pete. Well, that's um, true. Yeah. I, I once read uh, Super Training uh, from Mel C. Sif. It's a big Bible of a textbook. And I say I once read it. I didn't read it all the way through. But when I w did go through it, I noticed that uh, it mentioned anything. When it mentioned anything psychological, I put a post-it in. 
and I stopped at like 22 or 27 post-its about how many times psychology was mentioned. Um, and that's like considered one of the the big original textbooks of strength and conditioning. So it's clearly important. And this book was out in the 90s. So mm. I'm interested to uh, find out what our today's guests think about this. Well, that's what we're going to do. And, you know, as usual, we, we start the episode with a question. We try and sort of muddle our way through uh, with the help of some guests. And the question we're going to try and answer on today's episode of the podcast is, how can I bring psychology into the weight room? And as always, we've got two experts. Well, not always, because you don't always have two. Um, but we have two experts uh, on this episode to try and help us answer that question in the next hour or so. So first up, we've got Dave Hembra, Esquire. He, he wrote that on his form. Um, Dave was a SNC coach who did some weightlifting, became a weightlifting coach who did some SNC, and now uses those skills and an interest in people to try and make the world a happier, stronger, and better place. Uh, Dave, welcome to 80% Mental. Hello. Hello, Pete. Hello, Hugh. Uh, hi, Nick. Great to be here this evening. Dave, I think anybody that knows you, well, what happens is I get our guests in advance to write their own introductions. And what I think, well, anybody who knows Dave will know that he sold himself short there a little bit, uh, humble as ever. Dave, can you tell us a little bit about some of your experiences uh, in the world of, of strength and conditioning and training? Sure. Um, well, first off, I've got to tip the metaphorical brim of my hat to Nick Ward, um, as he gave me my uh, first foot up onto the ladder of SNC. Um, and thanks to him, I, I've had a, a career uh, at Sheffield Hallam University. Uh, coaching athletes in a variety of sports. I've been lucky enough uh, in, in that time to coach uh, the Olympic Games, to coach Commonwealth medalists, to coach world champions in, in three different sports. Uh, I'm really um, fortunate to have had those experiences. Um, but also along the, the way, I've set up a weightlifting club uh, called Hallam Barbell, uh, and we deliver a whole range of different programs there from uh, competitive uh, elite athlete programs where we have British record holders and international competitors um, to programs for social change or mental health, uh, really sort of using strength and conditioning principles, but for a wider audience. I always felt that uh, just helping people win at sport against other people trying to also to win at sport um, didn't really cut it for me. And there was more to what I wanted to do in my time on this earth. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're doing OK, me and Helen Barbell, and uh, we're getting a few awards and some, some great points of recognition. Uh, the main thing is that I'm enjoying it and uh, I'm still coaching. No, that's awesome. And we'll, um, we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that side of things in a, in a little while, I think. But it's interesting that you mentioned Nick Ward as well, because by some amazing coincidence, our other guest is Nick Ward. Um, <laughs> Nick is uh, Altus Program Director and Performance Coach. Uh, and Nick believes in the power of coaching to change lives. This is what I mean when I say that the guests write their own bios. Uh, he started coaching at 15 and has worked pretty much across the whole spectrum of sports from uh, local junior rugby teams right through to Olympic athletes. And Nick, it's fair to say that your coaching has taken you places? <laughs> Certainly it has. Uh, one of the happiest places, of course, was Mary Sheffield. And where are you joining us from today? Today I'm in uh, South Lake Tahoe, which is uh, Northern California, uh, right on the border with uh, with Nevada. So yeah, pretty pretty cool place to have been uh, been working and living in the last four four and a half years. 
Oh, well, um, Nick and uh, Dave, thank you both very much for joining us on uh, on this episode. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna kick things off uh, straight away with a, a question about um, what you see as the mental challenges that athletes or maybe even coaches might come up against in the weight room. Uh, and I'm going to start with Dave because he's taking a sip of his wine. What do, what do you think, Dave? What are some of the mental challenges that you've come, you know, that athletes or coaches might come up uh, against in the weight room? Well, there's a whole bunch of things going on when people are in what we're referring to on this episode as the weight room. There's a social dynamic between the, uh, you know, the individuals who are there at the time, whether that's them and the coach or them and the teammates or, or, or them and others training. Uh, and then there's the internal element as to um, what someone's setting out to do on a given day and to what extent they're uh, switched on for that, uh, believe they can achieve it. Um, and with most athletes' situations, have the feeling based on all the other stuff going on in their life from, from a training perspective and a personal life perspective. And that's why I think you know, as a coach, I've got to take on board to try and um, support the individual in front of me with all those things going on to make sure we'll uh, have a good day and effectively win the workout. Okay, Nick, what are your what are your thoughts on that, on what Dave just said? Yeah, I mean, there's not a great more deal to add. I think he's nailed it in terms of the, the social dynamic um, that's going on. And, you know, it, for me, the, the context or environments might be I'm in there with one squad of players, so we're the only people there. Uh, or it could be I'm there with a couple of athletes, you know, in a general public facility. So I think the, the environment can can change, um, you know, that, that dynamic. And the number one thing for me really is what are the athletes there to do? What what are they bought into? You know, what what where's their attention? What's their intention? You know, what's their focus? Um, do they really believe that strength and conditioning is going to help them be a better athlete and that it isn't just something that they have to do um, and, and that's I think sometimes is a problem where you I'm not going to say just young coaches here I'd be wrong to say that because I can see that with any coaches where it's their weight room it's their rules this is what we're doing this is what you have to do and people are kind of put on a military route march um, to get stronger um, rather than it being what, what I feel should be more of an immersive, interactive, you know, relationship exchange over what the hell are they doing there in the first place. Hugh, I want to bring you in here as well because obviously you work in a, in a strength sport. Um, what, what do you make of, uh, of what Nick and David just said there? You know, they talked about the social dynamic uh, and the, the purpose of athletes being in the strength and conditioning room. Like, What, what do you make of all of that? I think it's interesting in the sense that, you know, where you train can be as important as how you train. Uh, I can certainly think of clubs that have turned out uh, impressive lifters um, and impressive athletes, and yet they have limited equipment. And to be frank, the coach probably had limited understanding as well, but the culture of competition um, within that club actually produces something special. Um, so, I mean, that's a good question for you guys to answer, actually, is what's the difference uh, between the culture 
that pushes performance in the in the gym versus the coach that pushes performance and how would you seek to create better in both areas you know i've walked into multi-million dollar pound facilities i've worked, walked into plush health clubs with professional soccer players and i've also walked into 20 square foot of space uh, at Don Valley Stadium with Sheffield Eagles rugby players, you know, where there's been one squat rack, two bars and a bunch of dumbbells. And if you would want to ask me which environments have I found where there's been the right, um, I mean, we can debate culture of the environment as well, um, where I felt the environment was set that led to the appropriate behaviours we were looking for, um, it was two two times in my life. One was Sheffield Eagles, and over the period of time where we were back to back champions, and then also um, with Derbyshire Institute of Sport. And I'm going to add a third one actually when we had our first facility here at Lake Tahoe as well before we moved into the plush new one. You know, something just kind of changed in the environment and, and the way the way things just kind of felt and worked out. So. You know, the Sheffield Eagles example is that we had minimal equipment. We didn't have much space. We had a squad of players um, where at the time were a part-time rugby club. They weren't full-time. And players were coming in after finishing work and could be in a certain headspace. Um, other players got there early. Some were rushing to get there late. And they're only for some of them, their only opportunity to actually do any strength work, power work, speed work was about 30, 45 minutes before we walked out on the field and, and did the training out on the field. And, you know, all I basically did was I roped off an area then in front of that, you know, very, very small, you know, 10 by 8 or 15 by 8 foot space and roped an area off, put a whiteboard up the front and um, basically said, only enter if you're here to get better. And um, on the back of the whiteboard, as they walked out of that space, it would say, you've just got better. And there was a rule. There was a rule. If you want to be a dick and mess around and not really, you know, clue into joining in that session, then stay out of that space. Um, you know, don't come in. Respect your other teammates that they're in there because they've decided they want to focus on that part of their development. So don't disrupt that for them. Stay out of that roped off area. And we extended it again in discussion with the players another time that, you know, um, players wanted to go into that space, but they might not necessarily want to interact straight away. So we had two different colored mattings. We had a like a blue mat and I think it might have been a red mat that if people were on the red mat, probably the wrong color to use, but on the red mat, it was basically, fuck off, don't talk to me. Um, but I'm going to, I'm going to sort myself out. I'm going to go through my warm up and, you know, and, and just kind of leave me alone for a bit, but I am here to, to be part of what we're trying to do. And so those, those couple of things, I think just set some, I don't want to call them barriers, thresholds, understanding really of what it meant then to walk into that, you know, blue taped off area and that bit of space that we had to, to, to manage that weight room. You know, it's interesting the way you're describing that. What you sound as if you're discussing is basically non-negotiables, um, clear expectations of what players want. 
So it allows for people to be flexible in that environment and to understand each other without even communicating. So it's nearly like a, a cultural way of operating. Uh, Pete, that sounds a lot like psychology to me. Uh, any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it does. You know, I mean, we're what, 15 minutes into the podcast and we're talking about things like uh, culture and values and motivation and kind of getting athletes in uh, a space where they can train in a way that's most con- conducive to them making progress, right? And getting better, as, as Nick was saying. And, you know, it, it just goes to show, like I say, 15 minutes in, we're already talking about all of that stuff. It, it shows the importance of psychology in lifting up heavyweights and putting them down again. Um, well, well, yeah, I was going to say, Nick, you know, you've highlighted what the culture was, but I mean, the culture is a standard that you're prepared to walk by, I suppose, uh, is a good way of expressing it. So I'm really curious what happens and, and how would you know when somebody was going against that culture um, and what happened when that occurred? Was that, you know, enforced by you? Was it enforced by the players? Um, what what did a breach of culture look like within that weight room that was producing this sort of environment for performance? You know, um, the players manage that for themselves um, as a leadership group that they, again, understood what that was about. And it was also their safety as well as how well they can perform. It was a very, very tight space that we were in, you know. Um, so, you know, there was there was a time I remember just sitting back on the on the steps, you know, about 40, 50 yards away from the weight room, just watched it flow. You know, players coming in, players coming out. The workout was on the whiteboard. Players had individual options around that, which they were very unused to having. It was always come in and just do this. Um, I think, as you said, it took time to get there. There was a culture of education, always explaining why, inviting questions, uh, but also being there when maybe that wasn't going to fit for that person in terms of what their needs were. You know, I'd have one guy who would come in, um, I think it was a school teacher actually, and he was kind of mentally exhausted when he would come in and what he didn't want to do was kind of lie underground, hit a phone roller and do all that sort of stuff. He just wanted to get going. So I broke the warm-up rules for him. You know, he he got in and did other stuff to kind of get him lively and, and bright and ready for the training session. Um, players who who might, you know, in the past, right, someone might be in the middle of their squat and someone would come in and whip them on the back of the legs. You know, that just isn't acceptable, right? Um, but the players learn to manage that for themselves because they know, hey, you could hurt someone here. That isn't what we do. It was, it was almost like, you know, they would turf people out themselves of that kind of area because they knew we'd had that set up. And I was, you know, although they know they're part of the chaos, um, it was almost like they respected the fact that I was going to try and help them manage that chaos. But ultimately, again, they're the pack of wolves. They have to manage that between themselves. And it wasn't really for me to, to come in externally uh, and reprimand or punish or anything like that. Because in the sport of rugby league, you know, if your mate hasn't got your, your back on the field, you know, and they demonstrate that in the training sessions, those values that you guys spoke about have got to be apparent in both environments. They can't behave one way in the weight room and then behave a completely different way um, in on the field. Uh, you know, they have to learn that trust in all aspects of the different training environments that they find themselves in. 
You know, uh, I always like to say bully, bullying requires teamwork. Um, so it, it's maybe, maybe not appropriate to say, but, you know, let's get everyone involved and that's what bullying's all about. But to a certain extent, you do bully people who shouldn't be there out of the room. Um, and that's what creating a club and that's what creating a culture is all about is there's a line. You're either in here or you're out there. And if you're, you know, trying to bring the out there in here, you're going to get bullied and, and pushed out of it. And I think it's, you know, without being too facetious, there is a certain degree of acceptability in that because you can't, as one person, uphold the standards within a rugby club. It has to be the club hold it up. Um, I'm, I'm curious, Dave, you operate in a different environment and there's actually, you know, a culture that's spread, you know, far and wide. And what you've done at Holland Barbell in terms of building uh, strength through culture and culture through strength has been phenomenal to watch over the last couple of years. Um, culture and strength uh, in Holland Barbell. Talk to me about that. What's your observations and how do you relate to what Nick said? Well, I think, um, first of all, I've, I've got to make a guilty admission that I'm not a great performance coach because I'm not particularly competitive myself. And when I coach people, I'm more interested in the people than the performance and the outcome. And, you know, that, that Sheffield Eagles environment that Nick's talking about where they really were driven for physical success and to dominate the opposition and take some really significant measures to do so. Um, that, that's not my natural inclination and outlook. Um, and in fact, a lot of the performance sports I've worked with aren't as developed as that. And actually, you've got young athletes that are figuring themselves out, figuring the world out. And um, probably most importantly, they want to enjoy what they do because then they keep doing it and keep coming back. And in some of the minor sports, like weightlifting, that, that to become a champion, you know, become an awesome champion, yeah, you, you need to be you know, thoroughly weightlifting through and through um, and have the right gene pool. Um, but in a lot of spaces just by working hard consistently for a, a decent period of time um, can get you to a good place. Um, and so in terms of sort of culture with that, I'd like to give people good experience and have good connection. I want them to enjoy the environment, enjoy the training. And um, I know that will leave a positive impact where they want to keep coming back, um, particularly with young athletes or young weightlifters. Um, I'll give them space and give them time and let them explore and we'll do a little less work to have a little more talk um, because that's a point of them having a, a learning journey and discovering where they fit in the, to the whole training conundrum. You know, I coach Sheffield diving for almost 10 years now and, and that's, that's you know, a similar effect. Looking to just help people get in, understand training and apply themselves in an enjoyable way. Uh, and that's what we try and do at Helen Barbell whether that's the uh, weightlifting program where we are training for competition or whether it's, you know, the, the, the kids who are you know, six at youngest or the older adults in the Strength for Life program where we've got 17, 80-year-olds. Um, it's, you know, a cultural thing to get in and enjoy the connection with the people uh, and know that you can work as hard as you want to get the results that you want. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm just seeing the difference here in that uh, you're all about respecting the individual and developing the individual and Nick's all about creating the group performance. And there's a trade-off there between the, the group's performance versus the individual's performance. And obviously, you know, two different sports. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's it's interesting that as a S&C coach, you know, I, I've 
done uh, my UKSAI qualification and I've done my British weightlifting coaching qualifications, but no one's actually sat down and said to me, what's the difference in terms of coaching a group versus coaching an individual? And how do you manage an individual versus coach dynamic uh, or group dynamic in your training and account for like, if you do too much of one, you're neglecting the other and vice versa. What sort of trade-offs do you find yourself thinking along uh, in a psychology terms within the strength and conditioning environment? Are there other trade-offs as well? I think with that example, Hugh, experience I had is um, working at a, uh, a rugby club, uh, Rotherham Titans, so Union, as opposed to, to league, where Nick was talking about the Eagles. Um, I, I found that I was spending more time with the players that weren't massively engaged and um, I was sort of begging and conjoling, trying to encourage them to do the warm-up properly and stretch and you know, do the things I know they needed to do. Um, and I was chasing them. And a, a rugby league coach who was working at the club, funnily enough, said to me, squeaky gate gets the oil. The squeaky gate gets the oil. And I don't really know what he meant at the time. But I went away thinking about that. And, and what it meant was that I was chasing these players. They were the squeaky gate. And actually, there was players who were bought in, engaged, working hard, and they the ones that were deserving of my time. And as a result, I changed my tactics, and I spent more time with the players that were working harder and deserving of that investment of time, and started to ignore the players that weren't. And I, I came along the terms of um, interested, involved, and committed. And so I started to split the demographic. Who's interested? Well, they're there. They might not turn up regularly, they might not engage, but they're there, so they're interested. Um, who's really involved in terms of you know yeah they're there but they uh, get in the mix and they're perhaps more consistently in the mix and then who's committed who'd be there you know hell on, hell on high water you know do whatever it takes to to get to the training session and commit and so i, I saw my job there was, was trying to take those players in those categories just move them along to the next category and if someone's involved you know i could try and work them towards being in a committed point if someone's just interested it was how to then move them across into that involved status. Um, the other trade-off of, of groups is um, giving people the right amount of time, the right amount of space, and that's difficult. And we've probably seen that when there's a star in the room and you know the star gets too much attention, and sometimes that's the last thing they need too. So yeah, that, that dynamic of how you spend your time and who you give your time to is really important. I guess the final thing I say is I really believe in creating independent athletes. Um, not creating dependencies um, and creating autonomy and giving an education. Most of the athletes I coach and have coached for a long time, I know if they wrote their own program, they're probably pretty much write what I was going to write anyway because we've got that relationship and understanding. Squeaky gates that gets the gets the oil, as uh, they say. That was my worst impression at flipping. I'm gonna try it again. Squeaky gate gets the oil, lad. That's my best uh, northern accent. Nick, I don't think uh, that northern approach uh, playing uh, <laughs> playing up to uh, your uh, your athletes' needs probably fits at Altus. Um, is there a, a version of squeaky gate gets the oil, lad? At uh, Altus, <laughs> you need to stop saying that. Um, I think um, I think actually, hundred percent, what Dave just said is is ingrained in, in the Altus' philosophy and principles. That it's about, you know, our vision is 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 the one of a self determining athlete. 
uh, and following you know that that, that kind of concept of self determination. So even within and you know Otis is is track and field, so it is a, all about the individual athlete. My when I first met Stuart McMillan back in the mid nineties and hung out in Calgary and then came back to, to Britain to work. You know, I very much came in with that. You know, I want to work with individuals who just happen to be part of a team. And one of the methodologies that uh, Dan Path kind of espoused with us is this concept of mailboxing. And very much like Dave said, you, you kind of look at your group and look at similar characteristics that might enable you within a group session to treat them uh, for one particular virus or one particular goal for that day. So you would organize your groups accordingly. Um, and, you know, whether that be, you know, behaviors or whether that might be the intent of the physical outcome or their skill on that day or put all the naughty boys in one group, you know, you would mailbox uh, your session. And that takes a little bit of organization beforehand. But actually, you can do that pretty much on the spot on the day as well, depending on, on your warm-up activities and practices and, and what, what you're seeing as to how you then might reorganize your groups for the session that's, that's coming up. And what Dave mentioned there reminded me of one thing which I read very early in my career. Uh, I think it was Max or Mark Landsberg, the Tao of Coaching um, and the Skill Will Matrix. Um, you know, help me first of all start off with that kind of mailbox approach. You know, low skill, low will, low skill, high will, high skill, high will. And those people in those areas, how you can actually get them involved to help you manage those group dynamics as well. So um, although it's a group environment and it is about a team performance, it still is about how that individual is best enabled to express their individual abilities within that team context. And I think once you start to value them as individuals and not just a herd of cattle um, and find that time to, um, you know, engage with those individuals and, and something which helped me a lot with that was motivational interviewing. The ability to go into a very chaotic team environment, identify those kind of little pleas for help and not join in the banter of piss-taking that can go on and then pull that player for, and find that time for that one-on-one -on -one moment um, to say, hey, it seems like you're asking something about X. Uh, do you want to tell me a bit more about that? And there's the start of working with players within a team setting, but taking care of them more, more as individuals. Motivational interviewing. Hey, no, there's a lot to be said about that. Um, <laughs> Pete, you, you hardly ever mentioned that. No, uh, Pete, uh, you've been sat there quiet and uh, observing uh, these two fine, fine gentlemen. Um, I, I'm really interested to know what you think. You've been exposed to strength and conditioning both as an athlete and then also as like, what would you say, uh, decrepit, tired old man trying to keep fit? Easy. Uh, <laughs> but no, what are your thoughts here? You're hearing a lot of psych stuff. Well, you know, all I can say there is that as a decrepit old man, I have, I, you know, learned a lot from Dave, who's also <laughs> a decrepit old man. Uh, but in terms of the kind of strength work that I'm still doing, you know, a lot of that is based on stuff that I've learned from Dave. So, you know, uh, hats off 
to him. Um, I, I think what's really interesting for me is that, you know, we've been talking for, for quite a while now and we've been talking about culture and we've been talking about values and we've been talking about motivational climate and group dynamics. And like you say, it's all psychology, right? Um, I, I, I found a, a study um, from, it was just from last year, actually. And interestingly enough, it was uh, Ale Quartiroli, who has been a guest on this podcast. And they looked at uh, strength and conditioning coaches' perceptions of sports psychology and sports psychology strategies. And Nick, you just mentioned kind of motivational interview in there. Um, th- their study looked at college coaches' use of sports psych skills and strategies in the US. And it was about like 400 odd coaches. Um, most of them reported having uh, less than moderate training. I don't know exactly what that means, but you know can figure it out for yourselves less than moderate training in sports psychology but they also reported a moderate to high use of certain sports psych strategies so not necessarily having the best training in it but reporting a high use of you know using some of those skills like you know goal setting self-talk relaxation all that sort of stuff so you know my, my question to to both of you uh really is have you got examples of when you've used some of those kind of classic psych skills. Um, but more more than that, I'm sort of interested in how you learn to apply them. Is it kind of instinct, you know, the stuff that you've talked about in terms of culture and, and, and environment? Is that instinct as a coach? Is it formal learning? Is it working with psychologists? Um, Nick, I'm going to come to you first on this one. Um, so uh, just to add to your lit base there, um, I know uh, a guy that actually helped me a lot in my early days was Dr. Tom Fawcett. Who's now at University of Salford, and him along with Paul Comfort have done some similar studies of, you know, psychology and strength and conditioning coaches as well. My original, um, I guess, part of this, um, even if I go back to being a 15-year-old coach of a boys' football team, was when I yelled at a kid one day, and my assistant coach, who was an adult and a parent, pulled me over and said, "That's probably not the best way to get things out of somebody." You know, these are just young kids. And, you know, I've had so many moments like that when other people I respect have just said one sentence to me and it's allowed me to shift my paradigm straight away, you know. Um, But I remember, um, you know, I think the book was Cox Sports Psychology in my first year as undergrad at Newcastle Poly, as it was back then, and absolutely hating it Um, and not really enjoying it at all. But interestingly, I started to understand psychology through the eyes of marketing. Um, I, I enjoyed the marketing courses. I enjoyed understanding how do you get someone to buy something they didn't know they actually wanted to buy. And um, ultimately, that's what coaching can often be about. My brother was in marketing. So I actually got hooked on psychology through marketing. Then when I wanted to do my master's degree, um, during that period, I did a, 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 a it was certified test of fitness award in Canada and built into that program to become a qualified fitness coach was behavior change, self-efficacy models, counseling, and a model of behavior change that was called the trans-theoretical model. So that was built into my training. And there was an SNC coach there on my master's degree who literally his attitude was, I don't care what motivates them to get in the gym. I only care once they're in the gym. And I didn't agree with that. I thought it was really important uh, what what got them to, to go through that door. 
So very early on, well, I say early, mid, mid-20s, when I was doing my master's degree, I took a whole course on exercise psychology, which really looked then a lot of the behavior change models. Um, you know, it was kind of down to me to then, you know, uh, integrate that into my practice. But I was fortunate that I, I got exposed to, to that through, through my uh, formal education. And then um, I took on a, a mentor when I was the performance director at University of Durham for a year called um, uh, Mark Bellamy, who's a sports psychologist. Um, and also, like I said, I got to know Dr. Tom Fawcett as well. Um, and, you know, really use those guys to bounce ideas off and, and work with me on my coaching skills and abilities and how to make, you know, practices more effective. And Tom was also working with us with the Cricket Centre of Excellence at the time at the University of Durham too. So I got to see kind of sports psychology, if you like, in action, very much in, in the situation, in the environment as well. So, you know, just... Just fortunate that it was part of what I was exposed to uh, early on, and um, you know was was able to recognise that hey, this is going to make me better as a coach if I if I actually try to start work, working on some of this stuff and how I how I practice. So a, re- a real combination, really, of uh, informal learning from other people and perhaps some of that more formal education stuff. Dave, I, I wonder what you think uh, as well here. You know, what sort of psych skills do you use? Uh, and again, you know, how did you learn to apply them? Again, you know, formal, informal, working with psychs. So I think it's probably a, a process of um, consciousness as you mature as a coach um, to understand that it's not about you as an individual and what you know and what you can do. Um, and it's not about the technical knowledge it's perhaps about how you apply it. Um, and so for me, I, I think back on some of the sort of pivotal moments where I start to develop what we can call you know, psychological skills. Um, I was dealing with a lot of athletes, TAS athletes, student athletes, who had a lot of challenges and difficulties in just organising their shit as students. And I realised the biggest limiting factor wasn't the prescription I was making or the way they necessarily applied themselves at the gym. It was often other stuff going on in their life. And that was really important. And in fact, I carried out what you, know, you might call a screen with athletes when I first met them, asking a few questions of how well they knew their academic schedule or when their deadlines were or what other sort of stresses and pressures they had in their life because that was going to impact on, on what was going on, how they could apply themselves, how they could train, how they could recover. Um, and, and I really sort of realized quite early that that was really important. And that as a coach, as a strength and conditioning coach, I had to take that sort of stuff on. And so... Yeah, that was a sort of relationship building and um, building understanding and rapport element that, you know, I guess is a psychological sort of basis. Um, I also remember a point where I had a bunch of athletes that I was training and I sort of went through the list and I, I was like, right, they're shit, they're shit. Yeah, they're no good. They're not good. And I went through this list and I, I sort of mentally checked them all in my head as being shit. And I thought, hang on, who's shit? And there was a pivotal moment there and I, it was like a... a uh, epiphany as such that right perhaps the way i'm viewing these guys and perhaps what i'm delivering to them isn't as it's needed to be or the way i'm viewing them as to the way they need to be coached so that was perhaps earlier on in my you know, snc career um other sort of points of learning um motivational interview and i've been through the three sort of stages of, of mint training and found that very 
um, useful, uh, eye-opening. Um, and also I spent some time with Joan Duda in an empowering coaching program. Um, and so Joan has obviously got some great research in, in coaching. Um, and I spent some time down with her in Birmingham following meeting her at Glasgow Commonwealth Games and seeing her present. Uh, and that, that was really um, useful to learn self-determination theory and the way they embed it into that coach education program that they, they run so well. It's interesting here because what I'm hearing from you, Dave, is take people from where they are or take them as they are uh, and not where they should be or what not where you want them to be. And what I've also just heard from uh, Nick is, you know, you have to sell somebody something they don't know they need. I find like, you know, there's a clash between those two things in a sense. Um, well, maybe there isn't. I, I don't know. But I mean, the the interesting thing I thought was whenever I, I work, I've coached um, in a weightlifting club and obviously set up weightlifting clubs myself, um, it's people come to you for your expertise. But when you're dropped into a high performance multidisciplinary team, uh, the athletes given, you know, services from every area and actually they don't know what they need they don't know how to use it um and it, it's just kind of like well you're gonna actually have to sell to somebody who's pretty uh pretty much already self-sufficient because they got there and then they've got all this extra support so there's a lot of conflict i think going on there and taking somebody where they're at plus trying to sell them something they need that they don't know uh dave any thoughts on that yeah, I've got a, a couple of thoughts. Firstly, an example of where I've tied those two elements together, if you like. An example is uh, a TAS athlete who was 16, 17, came in, first time in the gym, told me that um, she didn't like the gym, she didn't like S&C, and um, this wasn't for her, but she was doing it because it was expected. I thought, okay, right, we'll, we'll work with that. And uh, gradually over a period of time, we, we got her on board. I found out what she did like and she did want to develop physical skills. She was going on a summer holiday, and so we put a beach program together. A couple of years later, she was lifting good weight. She was competing at a high level, and uh, she was going to university. She was going to Loughborough University. We put a period of training together based on her being ready to be uh, a Loughborough student. Um, you are no close to your own heart, having spent a lot of time there. Um, but the purpose of her training at that point was to A, to fit in, and B, to stand out. Um, and that really motivated her. Um, it wasn't necessarily about the, the performance effect on badminton, but I, I remember the, the text I got on the first sort of week of her time at university saying, hey, Dave, I'm doing great. Um, have a first weight session. And the coach asked me what I've been doing, where I've been training. And um, I'm better than everyone. And she went down to, to Loughborough and, you know, she was part of the badminton squad and uh, she was lifting bigger weights, moving better um, than, than most of the, the squad. So, you know, that, that was a point in which where, you know, I met her where she was and her dislikes. I sold her the benefits based on what you know, motivated her. And we took her to a, uh, a decent place and a place of success. The, the other example um, is something you might hear uh, or have heard. And that's the athlete is the CEO of the company. And I used this as a metaphor the other day with an athlete. Um, say that you know, as an athlete, they have coaches and different disciplines and they are the CEO of the company and they manage the performance and the different disciplines are different departments in that company. And, and she, as the athlete, needed to interact and manage and converse and um, build the work plans of those departments. 
um, to have that independent and that autonomy and, and that central control. And so me as an SMC coach, I was an employee of the department and she was the boss and she had to interact and learn to manage me and all the other departments effectively to, to work towards a performance. Yeah. You know, Dave, I find, I find, uh, the idea of the, the athlete as a CEO or the team as the CEOs, so the board of directors, uh, quite an important concept. And I, I always try and fit in, uh, I work for you, you're my boss. And it, p- it puts that person in a position of power. Um, and for a lot of people, they don't know how to manage that at times. Um, Nick, I'm curious, Dave's just, you know, talked us through a few things and I'm sure you've got some ideas. Um, you're sitting in a different area of the spectrum, I suppose, there, and maybe that doesn't fit for you. Maybe it does. Um, do you want to rip Dave apart and we'll have a big fight? We'll get a fight going because, you know, we're all macho here at s c You know, um, so I work with a lot of individual athletes now and I work with downhill skiers and... Um, you know, Dave knows by working with Steve Pete, these people are like getting on equipment and go downhill very, very fast where they can get seriously injured. There's a certain psychology or, or type of person that that is. And, um, you know, the one athlete I'm working with here, I started working with his girlfriend first who was in the Canadian team. And she she took it on trust that I was the guy to work with down here because the person she worked with in Calgary recommended me and therefore... She had that trust, and I worked their programs through with with her. And um, you know, at that time, you know, I could have come in with, "I'm the powerful one; you do as I say." Or she's the one coming in with the power because you know, I'm she's got the program in the background, and it's that kind of power struggle. I think that um, too many coaches go in with determined to win. And, you know, I think there are some athletes that don't want the CEO model. There's some athletes who just want to be told what to do. And that works for them. I know of athletes that if I told them tomorrow's workout today, they'd wake up in the middle of the night having panic attacks about it. You know, they didn't want to know until the day what it was going to be. You know, so then we've got to be a little bit careful with, with bundling everyone up in the same, you know, whatever popular psychology method or, or, or words is going on you know so in my skier uh, he had been a member of the u.s ski team for a lot of years and he saw me working with his girlfriend and she said i know you, i think you'll, you'll like working with nick she was a very executive thinker and what i mean by that is every detail on the plan she did even down to tempos and being exactly precise on how much rest she would take between exercises he had been exposed to a lot of different physical trainers through his years working with the national team, to the point where in the off-season, he disappeared off the national team radar. He did not want to work with the national teams because he was a subject of another coach's programming, power programming over him, rather than him feeling he was doing what was right for him. So we built that relationship up. And you know what? It started from one of my first interviews with him. And I said, look, you've had a lot of experience in, in training over the years, what do you think's worked for you? And he said, that's the first time anyone in my role ever asked him that question. What's worked for you? Um, and knowing that he'd been a soccer player as a kid, he loved kind of running and the agility. And, and this guy was way more focused on, on fluid movement, feeling good. You know, not, he, wasn't, he didn't care about the numbers on the bar. 
So I could push numbers on the bar because that's what's going to tell me is going to get him stronger as long as he felt good, you know. So we could, we were quite loose with our structure around his programming because he got to that point where he had a say in what we did. We would negotiate what the programming was. So that built trust, you know. Um, for him, he probably was more of a CEO-style person, where his girlfriend was like, tell me what I need to do. Now, during the year of COVID, I had to train those two together at the same time with limited equipment and and, uh, and space. And knowing they were very different personalities, but knowing that the constraints of the equipment and the space meant I had to get them doing some things in a very similar way. And that ended up working out really, really well because, you know, her kind of focus on, on her attention to how her body was feeling actually matched his need to feel good. But he never had as much attention on his warm-ups. So he started spending more time not just jumping into the workout, but getting his body right for the workout. She then became a little bit more, okay, I don't mind if we adapt and change this today rather than know it's on the program, you know? Um, so um, I think that the, the building of the trust, you know, the, the, these athletes have experienced people like us before now. It's, you know, it's been around before. With young athletes, we might be their first experience of this. But we're also adults working with kids, and we don't know if those kids have ever really had a true trusting relationship with older people or parents or whatever. You know, So again, we can tend to be, uh, exude our power over them rather than create an exchange with them. Hello, I'm Hugh Gilmore. I've been told <laughs> to put in a break for the 80% Mental Podcast by Pete. We are the 80% Mental Podcast. Thanks. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. So we're here with uh, <laughs> we're here with Nick Ward and Dave Hember, and we are asking how can we? What, what was the question again? We're asking how can I bring psychology into the weight room? Uh, we've heard some really fantastic insights from both our guests so far. We've talked about culture and values and trust uh, and group dynamics and working with individuals. Um, so we, we've heard some really interesting um, uh, uh, stuff from both the guys. Um, Hugh, you're you're sitting there giggling away. Um, have you got a question that you want to ask? Yeah, so... Uh, obviously I've done a bit of weightlifting I've done a lot of weightlifting coaching and uh, I was once observing a, a really you know established coach and he turned around and said to this girl uh, she had just done a snatch and he was giving feedback feedback to the girl um, about her snatch and he said the problem with you is your femur is too long and I'm sat there you know as a young coach going like all right okay what's he going to say next what's he going to say next and that was it. It just stopped. And then I, I'm sitting there like as a young coach going, what the hell does he do? Like, you know, how, how do you fix that? Is that like, oh, your femur is too long? Like, what, get the hacksaw out and cut a couple of inches off? So, I mean, what's the worst feedback you've heard in the weight room? And what's your best tip for actually giving good feedback um, as a coach? Because some of the, the movements in weightlifting are very technical and, and S&C, even just... The, the dynamics and the rhythm involved within sprint mechanics and agility and things like that, you know, it's incredibly complex and people don't realize it. 
hit me with your uh, feedback knowledge, please. Guilty as charged. Squeeze your glutes and squeeze your shoulder blades. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> providing you know, it's not, maybe not maybe not the most violent or uh, or threatening feedback anyone's got, but, <laughs> but probably some of the most most useless. Um, you know, in in you know in internal kind of cues um, you know, to try and elicit some better external kind of action uh, like that and. No, there is a role for those at times, but uh, you know, um, you know, in, in sprinting, for example, we had a little debate of the day about the idea of scissoring thighs, and uh, really, uh, the discussion was like, yeah, that's the pattern we're looking for, but that is never what we would tell the athlete is to scissor your thighs because there's too much information in that feedback for them. But to say punch your thigh forward brings it down now to something that they can apply and knowing there's going to be a reaction to that in how they then you know, create that, uh, that movement pattern. So sometimes there's the, the breakdown, the description of what we're looking for, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the feedback or the cue that you're, you're going to give. Nice. Dave? Give me some knowledge, please. Yeah, I, I've got a very similar example. Um, and in fact, I thought of two examples, and unfortunately it's by, by the same coach. Um, and the first was he, he was sort of spotting someone or training with someone, and he was just shouting at them repeatedly. I think they were squatting or deadlifting. Glutes! 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 <laughs> and he kept shouting, and he kept shouting louder. And slowly, everyone in the gym sort of stopped and turned and looked at this maniac. <laughs> Who, who was um, really in the moment and really sort of trying hard to support his partner. And, um, yeah, that, yeah, just everyone stopped and everyone apart from him who was in this bubble. <laughs> was like, wow, look at this. And, and the same guy at a different place at a different time was um, training. This one was um, doing something for time and it, it was hard. And um, he, he was giving some encouragement. And he said, go to that place, that place, go there, go there, go to that place. <laughs> with, with massive conviction that the words he was saying were meaningful and were helpful um, and um, I, I, I don't think they were um, so, so that, there's a couple of examples maybe, maybe there were and maybe that's the sort of thing he needed in fact I was at a competition once where I, I was asked to coach someone I didn't know and he was um, he was doing a PhD in some sort of um, technology and uh, AI um, stuff I remember a brief conversation about who he was and what he did. I thought, okay, you'll be interested. I said, as I'm coaching you, what do you need from me? You know, if you have a poor lift or if you need some encouragement, um, how can I help you? He said, oh, just tell me to try harder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and so, yeah, that was our coaching relationship. And off he went into the comp competitive platform. Did, did, you know, I think he hit a couple of lifts and missed one. He came back and went, try harder. He went, okay. <laughs> but hey that, that's the level at which he knew himself um the other side of that sort of spectrum a, a process I, I like that um i know is um gbh is a simple question in based format of uh, what went well what do you need to do better how do you make it happen and i really love the, the dynamic of um and the power of coaching through questions and i love that that piece where i've not given any information i've just asked them what they think I, I love that particularly because I hear their language and I hear 
where their heads at and often I hear what they say reflecting my language and what I was thinking um, and sometimes I don't and you can learn a lot from that too so you know there's a spectrum there you know shouting uh, obscenities and random words and, and you know stuff that doesn't mean much or um, maybe sort of just questioning through coaching coaching through questioning questioning through coaching coaching through questioning I like it so do you know I think this is really interesting uh, from a coaching perspective, you've just jogged a horrible memory that was in the deep, dark realms of my mind where I paid five pounds to get coached by somebody in weightlifting and they were working on the triple extension. And this woman, who was a coach, um, came behind me with a weightlifting strap and essentially whipped my bum um, to make me you know, triple extend more. And she tried to time the whip with the pull of the bar so that when I was like reaching triple extension, she was trying to whip me. So I would triple extend more or something like it was really weird, but I only paid a fiver for it. So, uh, yeah, Pete, what have we got next? Moving very swiftly on. What am I, what am I supposed to say? What am I supposed <laughs> to say after that? I don't know. You're um, like, <laughs> I want to, what, one of my, um, one of my all-time favorite pieces of uh, of coaching, I guess it's not necessarily feedback, it's more instruction, is when you hear coaches just yelling, focus, for people. Like, on what, dude? Like, help me out. Give me a like. Um, but uh, I, I want to get, actually, I want to skip on to um, a little bit of a later question because I know Nick hasn't got much time. Nick, what what do you wish you'd known about the mental side of performance when you first started out as an SNC coach? Wasn't ready for that one. <laughs> um, again, I think it's it's hard to say when I started because my, my mind always was kind of looking at ways to do things better. Um, I think, you know, the stages of change stuff which come along early in my career helping me sort of understand maybe the cycles people are going round to, uh, you know, to do something different, you know, um, was, was very, very key to me. But again, I was very early in my career then at that point. Um, you know, honestly, I, I probably would have to say it, it's more to do with understanding me more than it probably was to what I could do better with my athletes. I probably could have done sooner i learned more about me by what i learned about how i could work with my athletes but maybe that is what as an early coach someone had sat down with me and examined me um and and looked at you know my style um you know my roadblocks to learning um you know how maybe use video more to watch how i actually did stuff out in the coaching environment so yeah, I think more more maybe someone working with me specifically as 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 a coach internally first because um, I had to turn a lot of that external work I was doing back in on myself later in my career to look to examine me. I'm I'm a way more confident person on the outside than I am on the inside, um, and and, and mm-hmm. fortunately I, I, I'm able to kind of channel that. Um, but there certainly are times when, when, you know, you hit a lot of self doubt 
Um, Dunning-Kruger effect, I've realized, has been huge in my career. Super confident to go out and say, yes, I can do everything. And then all of a sudden go, oops, maybe a bit more off than I could chew there. So having that kind of mentor maybe earlier on that, that really helped me to get focused because I butterflied around a lot with a lot of different things and maybe never went, uh, you know, did any deep work on very specific areas. So, you know, it's hard for me to say that was bad looking at what I'm doing now and how my very generic abilities are helping many, many things. But yeah, I'd, I'd probably say that someone to work more with, with me on me earlier in my career could have been helpful. I think that's really interesting because a lot of our listeners are uh, psychs uh, and trainee psychs as well that make up sort of the majority of our, our listenership. Is listenership a word? I don't know. Um, but in terms of how they might be useful when embedded in an environment, like a team environment, and working with some of the coaches, I think what you've said there um, is some really helpful advice, I guess, um, how they can perhaps act as that you know mirror to hold it to you and help to, you to, to reflect. So it's not necessarily going in there with advice. Oh, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. It's going in there. And like Dave said, you know, uh, coaching through questioning, mm-hmm. allowing you to perhaps reflect a little bit more and develop that way. Dave, uh, I, I want to bring you in here as well. You know, same, same question to you. What do you wish you'd known about the mental side of performance when you first started out coaching? I think when you start out coaching, there's, a lot of basics you're still figuring out and it's all very technical and, and very process and anatomical and what your psychology and your perhaps your you know good coaching influences is it's personal and it's to do with people uh, and relationships um but maybe that's a necessity that, that you know you need to go through those technical processes to be au fait and a good coach at a basic technical level. And once that becomes um, just part of who you are and the knowledge that you've got, you can then go on to, to work at more of a relationship level. Um, so I, I don't know, Pete, to answer that question, I, I think perhaps that, that process is actually quite important. You know, as a young coach, you're looking to take on technical knowledge and you, you're looking to define yourself and prove yourself, show you, you're valid within what you know based on the, the, the technical aspects. I know a certain amount of biomechanics and physiology and you know, I know different bullshit periodization phrases because that, that's um, the foundation. And once, once you've got that ingrained, then you can start to appreciate that that foundation is just you know, part of the picture. Um, so yeah, to, to, to know earlier on how much it's to do with relationships and people is really important. Um, but I think, moving through that process is an important part too. So I don't know whether I'd sacrifice it. If I, if I can um, shamelessly plug our Masters in Strength and Conditioning at Sheffield Hallam, you know, it's a Masters in Strength and Conditioning coaching. And we do include those sort of psychosocial elements and that personal approach. And um, that that's, you know, essentially really, really important. Um, perhaps it's coming more into the coaching literature and in Strength and Conditioning as an industry, you know, through work like Chris Edlack that, that Nick mentioned earlier is doing. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that's an answer, um, but that's, uh, that's my thoughts. I'll, I'll add, can I, can I add one more thing? Let me just add one more thing. Pete, yeah, I think, um, you know, 
as strength and conditioning coaches working with performers at different levels, um, I think this might sound obvious, but we we often like to think we know what it's like for them, or you really need this. I think we have, you know, we we never. I'm never going to know what it's like to win an Olympic gold medal. You know, I'm never going to know what it was like for those Sheffield Eagles players to win two championships. I'm part of that system and environment. And maybe from early on, it's just having a, a little bit more of an open mind to to um, be, be comfortable with being uncertain and trusting that the athletes do know themselves better than we do. And who are we to judge that if we don't think they know enough? You know, so... Again, I think you know, we, we never really got to understand what it's like to get into the mind of those. And also, I think from early, early days, to understand the difference between a lot of the stuff that me and Dave have been speaking about here, apparently it's called psychology, right? I just thought it was being a decent bloke <laughs> and helping people train better. But apparently it's called psychology because most psychology that I was introduced to was about anxiety, depression, you know, pre-game nerves, you know, um, the yips and all this sort of stuff. Now, we, we, we don't touch that area of, of psychology, you know. So there is another dimension here and another part of that that maybe coaches get frightened away from the word psychology because maybe the meaning they attribute to that as well. So, you know, early to understand there's different branches here that, that coaches uh, are quite welcome to to be involved with from early in their careers i think it's an important message to throw out there nick you've just hit a really interesting point and i want to ask you two quick fire questions if somebody is an snc coach and they're in a multidisciplinary team and working with a psych what would you advise that snc coach to ask the psych and and how would they engage with the psych and then vice versa as a strength and conditioning coach, what would you advise a psych to do to try and get buy-in and work with the coach, the S&C coach better? Um, hit me with your knowledge, Dick. So I worked with a sports psych called Carl Botterell when I was out in Canada, and he, he's a veteran of a number of Olympic Games. And he said, we spoke about developing a professional code between the different support staff. And he said, professional code, he said, it means do your fucking job. Your job is to pass information on to another coach that might be pertinent to their role with that athlete. And likewise, you have to be receptive to information being passed on to you by another coach that might be pertinent to your role. Now, we get into the touchy-feely area of, of privacy, right, and protection and all those things. But I would say to a sports psych, um, you know, um, I'm, I'm with the athletes a lot, um, I know there's going to be things you might be working on either with individuals or with the squad. Um, how can I best support you in that role? Um, how might I, you know, how might I support you in that role would be the simple question. Now, what matters the most? How can I help you with that? And see if that starts the conversation. So, Dave, your, your approach to sport and physical activities changed a bit over your career, I think it's fair to say that, as you've moved from elite sport into more of a focus on participation and lifelong physical activity, well-being, health. 
what what are some of the best lessons that you've learned about how to work effectively with people in training environments in snc environments as you've gone through that that process that change i think pete as um as a coach and as a person i've always been interested in people and i think that helps training people has always been about them and not me and um, I guess people who, who know me reasonably well, and I'd like to think and say I've, I've not got an ego um, per se, or not a huge ego anyway. And um, it means that the person in front of me is of interest to me, and I want to help and support them. And that's true when you know, I was training more in an athletic environment and training athletes, um, predominantly student athletes or otherwise, um, as I talked about earlier. Um, and now it's just a bit more focused on the person in front of me and their personal development and experience with exercise and their relationship with themselves in some ways. Um, I really love the work of Gene Cope um, in transformational leadership and coaching and participant development coaching. You know, the, the, the four C's and the three P's um, that he talks about. And um, I'm really driven to deliver a coaching model through myself and now the coaches I'm mentoring and the, the coaches at Helen Barbell that has those, has those elements embedded. And we don't get taught that in coaching qualifications. Um, we don't get taught to schedule in a session plan those important aspects. They're the magic things that just magically happen. You know, people play sport, people lift weights, people train, and this stuff just happens. But I, I don't believe that. I, I think we need to consider it and make space for it and have um, purposeful intent. And some of the things I do for that is I try and embed meaningful conversations into sessions. And so I'll throw a question out there or I'll bring a, a topic for discussion and I'll, I'll give space. So people aren't training physically at that point. They're talking meaningfully and they're connecting. Um, so these are some of the things I'm trying to do. Um, and that comes back to the character and the individuals. And I, I really believe that if people have a better time and have greater connectedness within the training environment, they'll keep coming and they'll get fitter or stronger you know, and better, whether that's to beat an opposition and play performance sport, whether that's just to have a healthier, happier life. As I mentioned already, Dave, you know, this podcast is only uh, possible because you connected me and Pete together. I think it says a lot about you. And I think... In one of our many conversations, you described yourself as trying to be enthusiastic for people. Um, I think it, it it says a lot, and I just I think at this point I'm just going to have to say and raise a little glass to you and say thanks very much for everything you've done. Every time I get caught up with you, you know it spreads from the case of the weightlifting clubs going well to we're working with older people, we're working with younger people, working people with other needs. And what would you actually deliver to the community of Sheffield has been just outstanding. Um, so, I, and I, you know, I think that's been acknowledged in your Unsung Hero Award from the BBC Sports Personality of the Year. Um, and again, you know, you're very humble about these sorts of things. But look, let's just put the spotlight on Dave and say, uh, well, well done. Um, you know, great effort, and uh, you didn't mess up too bad. <laughs> Cool. Okay. Um, I, I like Dave as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we've had 
Nick Ward and Dave Hembra on today's podcast, uh, where we've been asking, how can we bring psychology or how can we use psychology in the weight room? We've heard some absolutely incredible insights from both of our guests. Um, again, we've talked about things like creating a culture and a motivational environment for athletes. We've talked about working with individuals versus working with groups. Uh, and we've talked about all of the psychology that goes into uh, working with athletes in the strength and conditioning room or on the pitch or on the field or wherever. I hope that it's been useful for our listeners, for our psychologist listeners, for our SNC listeners, for anybody who's working in sport. Um, so I really just want to say a huge thanks to, uh, first of all, Dave Hambra. Thank you very much. I mean, it's a podcast, so they can't see you doing that. Um, but Dave just saluted at me as if to say, you're welcome. Um, <laughs> and thanks very much to Nick Ward. I really appreciate you joining us. Um, it's sort of nine o'clock at night where we are, but it's one o'clock in the afternoon where you are. Um, so we appreciate you taking time out of your day to uh, to come and speak to us. Yeah, thanks very much for having me on. It's been um... <laughs> It's been great being on. And um, look, if any of your listeners or whatever do want to follow up, um, you know, just reach out. And um, again, if there's anything more I can get involved with you guys in the future, um, more than happy to do that. So appreciate you all a lot for having me on today. Thank you. No, no worries. Um, we will put everybody's information in the description for the episode. So if you do want to reach, reach out to Nick or Dave, you'll be able to, to do that by just going to the website, uh, 80percentmental.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at EPM Podcast. Uh, and we're also on Instagram as well uh, at 80% Mental, all words. Um, like I say, I hope you've enjoyed the episode today. And we will be back with another episode fairly soon. Um, so we'll see you next time. Well, we won't see you because it's a podcast. Mm-hmm.